Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We are in Proverbs chapter 30 tonight for our time of Bible study. If you guys could start the count-up clock, the congregation would be very grateful. (laughs) And so would I. So in uh, 1991, there was a man, his name was Harriet Jackson Brown Jr., and he wrote a, a little book that was called Life's Little Instruction Book. And he wrote it as a going-away present to one of his sons who was going to be going off to college. And it contained, you know, pithy, funny, smart uh, gems of wisdom that he had accumulated throughout his years that he wanted to pass along to his son. Uh, And so he wrote him in this book. Well, the book became a bestseller. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for two years. It was in the number one spot for a full year, and it just went viral. I remember being a young man in those days. I picked it up. I probably found it in my grandma's bathroom and just thumbed through it, you know. And uh, and I still remember some of the things that that it said and, and live by them. Don't wash a car after dark. You know, don't cut the grass after dark. You know, like, I, I didn't look that up. That stuck with me. It was just there. It's like, wow, that makes sense. That's good. You know, and so just little gems, little things. But it was written from the heart of a father who wanted to communicate to his son some things that he had learned that he hoped would help his son. Well, Proverbs chapter 30 stands out from the other chapters of the book of Proverbs. It isn't like the others. And really, it carries that same spirit. It is, in a sense, a letter from a father to his son, seeking to communicate to him tidbits of wisdom, things that he hopes that he will live by, things that he has internalized and processed and now is communicating in hopes that his son will grab a hold of some of these things so that his future will be better. And so we have it listed for us here in Proverbs chapter 30. And and really the, the title of the message tonight is A Letter to a Younger Me. Because that's really what it is. It's a father who's hoping to impart something to a younger version of himself. And it's my prayer tonight that as we study through this chapter, that we would hear the heart of our father communicating things to us that will help us. That's God's heart. That's his intent. Now, the chapter really reads a lot like a New Testament Epistle, one of the letters of Paul or Peter or James. It kind of follows the same format. Uh, the author is identified, and then the audience, and then he gives his credentials, the reason why you should listen to him, and then he follows it with the content. And so it's a very helpful way that it's communicated to us so that we just have clarity. We know what we're hearing, we know why we're hearing it, and then we know what we're hearing, and he gives it to us. And so let's begin, because I, I do want to get through the chapter, but I don't want to go long. So uh, it's 33 verses, so let's begin. It says in verse 1, it begins with the author. It says, The words of Agur, the son of Jacob, even the prophecy that the man spoke unto Ithiel, even unto Ithiel and Eucal. Now, 
The name Agur, we don't know who this man is specifically. He's never talked about anywhere else in scripture. He's not listed in any genealogies. Uh, the name means the assembler or the gatherer. And, and many scholars, myself included, uh, believe that this is Solomon, that, that Solomon is actually the author of this and that he is giving himself this name. And the reason I believe that is because Solomon does that often in his writings. In Ecclesiastes, he calls himself the preacher and he has other names. In chapter 31, he's called Lemuel. And, and so he does this. And in the spirit of the book of Proverbs, he tells us at the very beginning that these things are parabolic or similitudes. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're intended to, to, to communicate a point that's underneath the surface. And so the name Agur, it literally means the assembler. And the whole idea behind it is that he's saying that I have spent a lifetime taking in information. I've observed things, I've lived things, I've done things, and I have processed all of that, and now I'm giving it to you in a form that's useful to you. That's essentially what he does. And I, and I love that because, really, this is kind of a bare essential to those that would be wise, that you become an assembler, that you become a gatherer, that you open up your eyes and just look at what's going on around you and connect it with your past experiences, things that you've seen or stories you've heard from others, and come to concrete truths, develop a, a kind of a, a, an interpretation, if you would, of the way life works. And, and it'll help you just assemble, gather. I remember uh, when I, I didn't go to college for a full, you know, time, but, but for the time that I was there, I remember that there was a professor, and, and he said these words. He said, you know, very scholarly, very, like, professional, very smart guy. He stood up and he said that uh, within 20 years, all of the, um, you know, usable oil in the world will be used up. He said, within 20 years, there will be, it'll cost more to get the oil than the oil will be worth, and there'll be no more oil in 20 years. And I thought, oh, okay, there's not going to be any oil in 20 years, you know. But it, it was just something that, I, that lodged itself in my head. It was, a, it was gathered, and, and now I've lived for 20 years. And guess what? <laughs> you know, I've realized that that guy didn't know what he was talking about. Now, that could just be something that could fly over the radar, and it's gone, but I've taken that and I've assembled it with other things. And I've heard people in white lab coats say things that turned out to be wrong. I've heard people that seem very educated, very intelligent say things that turned out to be wrong. And so the sum total of gathering all of that is that just because somebody seems smart or intelligent or carries a Bible, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the authority on things. That's what it means to gather process and conclude and that's what he essentially is saying that this is what i've done i've assembled and now i want to give this to you notice that he calls himself the son of jaka or yaka i love it again no record of anyone named that is this a literal person maybe maybe not what does it mean it's a conjunction of two hebrew things yah which is kind of the beginning of God, when anytime that you see Yah in a name, like Yahshua, it's Jehovah is, so Yah is for God, and Ech is the breath. And so the God breath, in other words, the assembler 
who is the offspring of the breath of God. And I love the picture. Whether it's literal or figurative, it applies. Because essentially, he's identifying himself as one who has taken what God has shown him and is now giving it to an audience. Who's the audience? First of all, he calls it the prophecy. Now, the word prophecy there is not prophecy in the classical sense of foretelling something that's yet to come. But rather, the word prophecy literally is oracle or burden. In other words, it's a revelation, a message, a prophetic word, something that's been given from heaven and is being communicated on earth. That's what it is. And the audience is to Ithiel and Yukal. And again, I looked up those words, the names, what they mean. Ithiel literally means the one who God is with. And Yukal means devoured or consumed. And I think those are beautiful names because really those are similitudes of every Christian or every believer. Because if you're a believer in God, then God is with you. And his desire for you is that you be consumed with him. He's a consuming fire. I think that's what God's will is for every one of us. That God be with us, which he is, and that we be consumed with him. That's optional. One is involuntary. If you're saved and you know God, he's with you because Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. But whether or not you're consumed with him, devoured by him, that's your choice. It depends on how close to the fire you abide. And I believe that it's the second one of those things, being consumed with him, that's what makes us attentive to the message that he wants to give to us. See, if you're saved but not consumed. God is with you, but you're not consumed with God. Then you have an advantage, but you're apathetic. You have the advantage of having God with you, but you don't recognize a lot of the things that he's doing, and you're not receiving the things that he wants to give you because you're just not paying attention because you don't care all that much. And there are some Christians that are saved, but they're not consumed. Now, to be consumed with something, yet not be saved... You have an obsession, but it's with something that's empty, something that cannot ultimately satisfy you and probably will ultimately one day destroy you. And so it's not good to be consumed and yet not saved. But to those that are saved and consumed with God, to those people, you can be consistently hungry for him and consistently satisfied and fully alive all at the same time. And I believe if you're in that place tonight, that you're going to hear very clearly what God wants to say through the passage uh, that's before us here. To Ithiel, even unto Ithiel and you call, to those that are saved and consumed. Now he gives us credentials in verses 2 through 4. I love it because his credentials consist of seven things that he is not, followed by one thing that he is. It's the anti-resume, if you would. He gives his weaknesses first, and then he gives his strength. Here they are, verse 2. He says, surely I am more brutish than any man. That's polite King James language for stupid. That's what he says. I am stupid. And I do not have the understanding of a man. Not only am I stupid, but I am uneducated. I don't even possess common sense understanding that would be possessed by a normal human being of my age. 
Then, third thing, number th- verse 3, number 3, he says, I neither learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the holy. In other words, nobody taught me. I'm uneducated in the sense of I haven't been taught these things. And I, number four, don't know what God knows. When he says, I don't have the knowledge of the holy, he's saying, I, I'm not God, and I don't know everything that God knows. Number five, verse four, he says, who has ascended up into heaven? That is, I have never been in heaven and had a face-to-face with God where he lives. Or, number six, descended. In other words, no one from heaven has ever come down and had a conversation with me to teach me these things. Or, he says, who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? In other words, he's saying finally that I don't have the power of God or the ability of God. So he says, before giving anything else, he says, I'm stupid, childlike, uneducated. I'm not God. I haven't seen God. I've never been visited from heaven, and I do not possess the power of God. Do you want to listen to this guy? (laughs) Now he tells you what he does have. He says, what is his name? And at first you wonder, think, well, he doesn't know it. But then by what he says next, you realize that he knows fully well who he is. He says, and what is his son's name, if you can tell? And between the lines, what this man is saying is like, look, I have no reason from an intellectual, earthly standpoint why you should take heed to anything I have to say. But this one thing I do possess, I know him and I know his son. I think this is the most beautiful resume that can exist in all of the universe. Someone who has come to the point where they realize that they possess absolutely nothing in and of themselves and that the sum total of their worth and credentials is in the fact that they know him and they know his son, who he is. That's a great resume right there. I've been studying through the book of James and just the first verse of the book of James, James 1.1, James, the apostle James calls himself James, a servant of God. And I love it. It's the exact same thing. Because if you think about all of the things that James could say about himself, he could say James the Apostle, James one of the original 12, James who walked with Jesus throughout his entire earthly ministry, James who was eyewitness to every miracle, James who saw Jesus walk on water, James who was there throughout the entire period of the book of Acts, James who's seen the first century of... He could have said all of that. He just says... What is going to establish my authority in such a way where people should listen to me? He says, you know what? I'm going to call myself a servant of God. That'll do it. Listen, when you come to that place where you realize that everything that you are and the full weight of your authority is in the fact that you know him, that's when you have real authority. It's not impressive, but it commands attention. And that's what happens here. This guy says, I've got nothing, but I've got him. Why did John the Baptist say that he must increase, but I must decrease? Because that's where authority and relevance really comes from. And so this guy says, hey, listen, I know him. I know his son's name. And now he begins. And he's going to give eight instructions to those that would listen. The first is in verses five and six. He says this. He says that every word of God is pure. The first thing, if you're taking notes tonight, is that the word of God is sufficient and safe. A letter to a younger me 
the word of God is sufficient and safe. Every word of God is pure, for he is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add not thou unto his words, lest he reprove you and you be found a liar. He says three things about the word of God in here that are essential for our understanding. Number one is that the word is absolutely pure. Meaning that it is reliable all the way down to the core. That no matter how many layers, levels, or issues you hold up against it, it is perfectly pure and true all the way down and through. You're never going to find a flaw within the word. It's pure. Second of all, he calls it a shield. That if you live by and walk within the word, your life is going to be guarded and shielded against danger and unnecessary harm and difficulty. The word of God and walking in the word is going to bring safety. And then third, he calls it complete by saying, don't add to it because there's nothing else that you need. If you begin to think that I need the Bible and my counselor, or I need the Bible and these other books, or the Bible and the pastor or the prophet, or the, once you begin to add to it, you're going to find yourself drifting off into error. Now, that's not to say that those other things can't help you in some ways. It is to say that you need nothing more than the Word of God. Uh, Vinny Farisi is here tonight. He's sitting in the front row. He has an amazing message. If you ever have a conversation with Vinny that lasts more than 40 seconds, you're going to hear Vinny say, It's all you need. It's all you need. It's right here. It's right here. This is all you need. He deals with drug addicts. He deals with people that have been through all kinds of things and go through all. His message is, it's all here. It's all you need. Don't add to the word or think that it is insufficient. It is perfectly pure. Now, sometimes people think, reasonably so, maybe it's not. It's sufficient for some things, But there are issues and things that go deeper than what the Bible seems to go to. How do you deal with, I'm a Christian, and I have homosexual temptations or tendencies? I I don't, if if I did. How do I deal with if, and and there are things that, well, what does the Bible say? Because the Bible just says, and and I've talked to my pastor, and he just says, oh, listen. Sometimes it's under the layers But it's pure to the core. God has something to say to it. Do you realize that the earth, this earth, has the ability to produce an iPhone? Because an iPhone is made of everything that is here on earth. It's been put together by the minds of collective humanity and technology built upon itself over years. But the earth has produced an iPhone. Now, you can't pick up a handful of dirt and turn it into an iPhone. Nevertheless, it can be done. And sometimes it's the same way with the word. There might not be a verse that speaks specifically to your situation and your issue. And so you might have to add layer upon layer of truth and connect passage with passage and concept and concept and precept and precept and come to the picture of what God has to say. But the answer is there. The word of God is pure. And for us to turn to something other than the word in any time of our need is foolish on our part to think that God doesn't have something to say to the things that I am going through. Number two, not just the word is sufficient and safe, but number two is live in the sweet spot. Notice verse seven. He says, two things have I required of you, 
speaking in terms of prayer to God, desire from God. He says, deny me them not before I die. And here they are. He says, remove far from me vanity and lies. Number one is remove far from me vanity and lies. The Bible tells us that Satan, the devil, that he is the prince of the power of the air. That he is the one that is working the dials and the chess pieces in the politics and policies and cultures and trends of the world that we live in right now. That he has a hand of strong control. Now, he's not stronger than God. God has given him boundaries, yet he has authority in the world that we live in. And so he's the one that's working the puppets. He's the prince of the power of the air. Now, Satan hates humanity. He hates men because we've been made in the image of God. And so his desire is to deceive in every way that is possible. And that's what he does. Now, in the early 1900s, there were two men that were looking at what was going on in the world, and both of them saw something happening. And they both came up with, if you would, ideas about what the future would look like if things kept going in the way that they are. One of those men was Orwell, who wrote 1984. And he pictured a tyrannical world where people were suppressed and Big Brother was always watching and had control over everything that every, everyone was doing. That was one. The other was Aldous Huxley. And he wrote a book called Brave New World. And his philosophy, same ending point, tyranny and oppression, deception, destruction, all the rest. But his idea was not that it would come through Big Brother suppressing, but rather it would come by such a... Uh, an amalgamation of information and so much amusement and distraction that would come that people would just not care or be able to discern what was going on and that Big Brother wouldn't have to watch because we would be watching it. Now, I think his view is a lot more accurate, at least in America, than Orwell's view was. And here's my point and how it, 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 it relates to give me a life that's free of vanity and lies. Is that if you and I, if we are foolish enough to think that the stuff that we listen to on the radio or watch on the news or take in in terms of our information, that if that is at all leading us to a proper understanding of anything that's really going on in the world, then we're fools. Because Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and he is not going to put it out there for us. He's going to say, look over here, look over here, impeachment, look over here, look over here, look over here. And he's going to do something that nobody knows about. And listen, listen, there's nobody, okay, that has the inside track because they're humans with Satan's blood and all that stuff. Satan hates human beings. He doesn't have an allegiance with some. Do you know why Satan doesn't have an allegiance with some? Because they can get saved, and that happens, and then they turn on him. Satan doesn't trust anybody. He doesn't care what their last name is. It could be Rothschild. It could be, he don't care. He hates humanity. So for you and I, and here's the point, to give ourselves to being consumed with what's going on on the political stage or the cultural stage or the trend stage, we are giving ourselves willingly to vanity and lies because you will never come to any proper conclusion by following after those things. And what he is saying is, listen, keep your mind on what is true. 
Keep me, remove me far from vanity and lies. Put your mind upon God, upon his word, upon what he says. Put your heart and your affections and things above, not on things of the earth, and you're going to lead a blessed life. That's the sweet spot. Don't get consumed with what's going on in the world. It's going to distract you. It's going to make you angry, and it's not going to lead you to truth ultimately. The other thing he says is not only that, but give me neither poverty nor riches, verse 8, but rather feed me with the food that's convenient or fitting for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. In other words, find the enough zone and stay there. Don't give me poverty lest I become dishonest because I'm hungry. And don't give me so much wealth that I no longer have to wait on you and depend upon you and look to you and I become independent and my behavior shifts and I now deny you because I don't need you anymore in my life. Keep me in the place where I neither have too little nor too much so that ultimately my mind and eyes are stayed upon you. That's living in the sweet spot. How do you do that? You know how you do that? Is that you keep your eyes on him as the one who provides all of your needs. Meaning that no matter what you have right now, whether it's in your mind too little or too much, if that's possible, you keep your eyes on, okay, God, you are giving me what you know is sufficient for me in this season of my life for where I need to be right now spiritually. And I'm going to be content with what that is, trusting that if I need more, you'll provide it. Or if it's too much, you'll back me down that I might trust fully in you. That's how your eyes are on him. He's my provider. Live in the sweet spot is what he's saying, this father to his son. Number three, he gives in verse 10. And it is this, mind your business and don't judge people. Are there slides for these? Is there a slide for that? There, no. It would, there's no slide that says that, that says mind your business and don't judge people. Okay, So you got to write that narrative. Mind your business and don't judge people. Verse 7. Or, I'm sorry, verse 10. He says, Accuse not a servant unto his master, lest he curse you and you be found guilty. There's a parallel passage in Romans chapter 10 where the Apostle Paul says the same thing in just a few more words. And let me read it to you. It's Romans 14. Verse 1, he says this, he says, Him that is weak in the faith, receive, but not to doubtful disputations or arguments. For one believes that he may eat all things, and another who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him that eats despise him that eats not, and let not him that eats not judge him that eats, for God has received him. Here's the point. Who are you that judges another man's servant to his own master? He stands or falls. Yes, he is able or he shall be held up for God is able to make him stand. This was a big deal in the early church because the origin of place where the meat came from, it was either offered to an idol or it was clean and people fought. The church fought. Can we eat this? Can we not? And it was a big deal. And what Paul is saying here is mind your business about what someone else is eating and don't get your nose in what someone else is doing. You do what you know in your heart is right for you and what the Spirit of God is leading you to do. And don't worry so much about what everyone else is doing. Keep your uh, minds off of it. As a dad of five kids, and as a dad, I do not treat all of my kids equally. 
And you might think, well, that's wrong. And no, it's not wrong. And if you have kids, you understand completely what I'm talking about. You know why? Because they're different. And they can all handle different things. And I reserve the right as their dad to deal with them in non-essential issues individually. Now, there are essentials. Nobody's allowed to lie in my household. Nobody's allowed to steal in my household. Nobody's allowed to talk at my wife a certain way in my household. Nobody can do that. But there are things that some can do that others can't. There are things that I let my 8-year-old do now that I would not let my 16-year-old do when he was 8 because they're different. There are things I let my 18-year-old daughter do when she was 15 that I do not let and won't let my 15-year-old, who's 15 now, do because they're different. There are things that I let my 6-year-old get away with that nobody else can get away with. (laughs) Because he's different. He's very different than all of the others. And if I dealt with them all the same, I might be called fair, but I would not be dealing with them properly. And God can deal with us in that same way. I have a, I have a weakness. Um, it's a fashion weakness, believe it or not. What, no, no, no. Let me rephrase this. Okay, you all know that I have... This is not a confession. You all know I have a fashion weakness. I have no fashion concept. I have a weakness in that there's one thing about fashion that I like, and that is shoes. I love shoes. I don't know why. I, I can't explain it, but when I go to the mall... I want to go in the shoe stores. When I see cool shoes, I'm like, those are cool shoes. I don't buy shoes. You guys know, I've been wearing the same pair of black New Balance sneakers probably for the past year, and I will wear them until there's a hole in them, and my wife says it's time to wear new shoes. Because I don't like to spend money on this stuff, but I like them. All right? It's just a, a thing. If I cared about the rest of the wardrobe, maybe I would, but I just, I'm not that guy. Okay? Now, I say that because there is, um, there's a website, and it's called Preachers with Sneakers. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Okay? But there is, and I don't know who it is. I don't know who runs it. Okay? And really, I, I, have, I have seen um, stories about it, but I've never actually seen the website itself. But apparently, whoever runs this thing, what he does is that he follows Uh, certain preachers that have large followings and big churches and then he takes pictures of the sneakers that they wear when they preach and then he posts how much those sneakers cost so that everyone will know the exorbitant amount of money that some preachers are spending on their sneakers that they're wearing while they're preaching preachers and sneakers and it's supposed to be this egregious what? He spent a thousand dollars? He's a pastor. That's the people's money, you know, and, and it's this whole thing. And everybody's like outraged, like, this guy's horrible. He spent a thousand dollars. Let me tell you this, okay? If I was a preacher, and if God ever graced me in such a way that I was speaking before thousands of people every week, and if in that condition I was approached by a representative from Nike or Reebok or Puma or anybody else, and they said, hey, listen, we recognize that a lot of people are watching you preach every week. And we will give you a pair of $1,000 sneakers if you will wear them while you preach. Let me tell you something. I'm taking those sneakers, and I'm going to wear them while I preach because I think they're cool, okay? And you could take my picture, and you could put it online and the whole thing. What's my point? My point is you don't know where those shoes came from. You don't know where the money came from. You don't know anything about why he's wearing what he's wearing. You don't even know if they're real. They could be New York City knockoffs. So why are you spending all of your time judging what someone's wearing and not listening to what they're saying? 
That's what he's saying. Listen, you worry about you, mind your business, because God lets people do things that he doesn't let other people. And he lets, listen, newsflash, God lets people spend $1,000 on shoes and it's not sin. God lets people do non-essential things that maybe it wouldn't be okay for you or me to do, but it's okay for them. And we get so distracted with things that don't matter. And so mind your business. Don't accuse a servant to his master and say, God, he's wearing... God says, yeah, I know. I gave him the shoes. Oh. Can I have a pair? (laughs) He goes on. Sorry, I guess I got off on that a little bit. Number four... Number four, verse 11 through 14, number four is this. It's called, there is a generation. You'll understand in a second. He says, verse 11, he says, there is a generation that curses their father and does not bless their mother. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are as swords and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. The horse leech has two daughters crying, give, give. He says there is a generation that is disrespectful to their parents, that is inappreciative, that it's inconsiderate, inappropriate, selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, arrogant, abrasive, cruel, and entitled. Can I get an amen on that? The question is, which generation is it? Is it? Is it the traditionalists? You know, the ones who walked uphill to school both ways in the middle of winter and didn't have a jacket and they were thankful? Was it, was it the boomers? who worked themselves to death and just said, we're going to have what our parents didn't? Maybe it was Generation X, the latchkey generation. That was me. The the ones who invented the smartphone and YouTube and social media, you know. Or maybe it's the millennials, the ones who gave us avocado toast and... (laughs) and who are getting rich right now while the rest of the world thinks that they're living in their parents' basement, you know. Or maybe it's Generation X, the ones who are kids now, the ones who have never lived in a world, think about this, that didn't have a smartphone. They don't know what, what it is. Or I'm sorry, Generation Z. Right, you're right, sorry. Whatever. Keep track of these things. Which generation is it? Do you know which generation it is? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's every generation. Because we have a sin nature. And there is something so insipidly wicked in humanity that we grow into this world as disrespectful, unappreciative, inconsiderate, inappropriate, selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, arrogant, abrasive, cruel, and entitled people. And he says about it, going on, he says that for three things... The earth, or there are three things that are never satisfied, four that never say it's enough. The grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not filled with water, the fire that say it's not, it is enough. All pictures of things that are entitlement and selfish and feed me. And yet, he says, the eye that mocks at his father, verse 17, and despises to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out and the young eagles shall eat it. What's the point? Here's the thing, is that every single one of us passes through 
A season of life where we are entitled, unsatisfied, self-absorbed people. And one way or another, we're going to snap out of it. We're either going to wake up and get it on our own, or we're going to become a train wreck, this whole idea of the raven plucking out the eyes and, and being you know, stamped by the youngies. At some point, we snap out of it, whether God gets a hold of us or the Spirit of God does. Or we, you know, what's he saying? He's saying, listen, leave him alone. Chill out on the younger generation because you were what they are. And don't complain about it. They're going to be different than you are. It's going to look different than you. But don't freak out. Enjoy it. They're going to wake up. They're going to celebrate it. And you'll get to be a part of it. Don't, well, I won't use those words. (laughs) Maturity is going to happen. Number five. Let's move on. (laughs) Verse 20 is that every created thing has a purpose, uh, tools, and opportunity, so find yours. Now, we've preached on these verses in another study in Proverbs, so I'm not going to get too, too much into it. But he says in verse 18, he says that there are three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, four which I know not. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent upon a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. And then such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. That every created thing has some thing that God has made them for, an appetite that they want to fulfill, and God has given them the means of fulfilling the purpose for which they've been made. Every single person has that. You and I have that. And what he's saying is, listen, discover what it is that God has given you. Discover what desires he's placed in your heart, what tools he's given you to bring you to that place, and then seize the opportunity that you have. But take heed of this, is that that drive and those gifts that God has given you can be used for either good or for evil. It can either fulfill the good God purpose that he's given to you, or it can be as the way of an adulterous woman, and you can use it to destroy life and destroy yourself. Number six, verse 21, is that order matters. Order matters. He says, For three things the earth is disquieted, and for four it cannot bear. For a servant when he reigns, a fool when he is filled with food, an odious woman when she is married, and a handmaid that is heir to her mistress. When things happen out of the order that God has designed, the earth is disquieted. God is a God of order, and heaven is a place of order. And things in earth are a reflection of things in heaven, and rank is important to God. Now, with God, who promotes through ranks, rank is not an issue of right. In other words, you have to fulfill level one before you can get to level two, because you have to go. It's not about rank with God. It's about ripe. It's not ritual, it's ripeness. In other words, the reason why God promotes through the ranks is because he is using a position that we're in at a given time to prepare us for what is yet to come in the next season of our life. And when we jump rank because we're impatient, or when we're not ready yet, then there's a disorder in it. Things become discordant and harmony is broken down. And the Bible says that the 
earth is disquieted and you're going to experience a storm in your life if you aren't patient for God to move you through the ranks of where he's going to ultimately bring you. Now, having said that, number seven, which is uh, really takes us to the end of the chapter, verse 24, all the way down to verse 31, is that wisdom, and this is great, listen, wisdom beats rank. So if you're playing rock, paper, scissors, you know how paper beats rock, scissors beat paper, you know that whole thing? Wisdom beats rank. If you want, you want to move through the ranks, then get Wisdom. Watch what he says. I love the picture that he paints here. Verse 24. He says, There are four things which are little upon the earth, but yet they are exceedingly wise. He says, The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. The ants are wise because they know their seasons, and therefore they don't go without. They understand that they need to prepare when it's time to prepare, so that they have in the time that they'll need. The answer wise. Then he says, verse 26, the conies are but a feeble folk. That means that they're weak. They have a weakness, but they know their weakness. They're wise. It says, yet they make their houses in the rocks. The conies are wise because they know their safety. They know they can't be running around out in the open because they're vulnerable prey to anything. They're not fast. They're not swift they're not agile they're vulnerable and so they know their safety and they don't die because they dwell in a safe place number three verse 27 the locusts or the grasshoppers have no king yet they go forth all of them by bands now again the locusts they are vulnerable prey. They're like a school of fish when a shark or a whale swims up you know they could just be swallowed right up but they know that their strength is in their numbers. So they don't go alone. So they know they're vulnerable, and so they take friends with them. They don't, they don't go by themselves, and therefore they're wise. And then finally, number four, the spider, verse 28, takes hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. How many of you have spiders that live in the corners of your rooms in your house or wherever, you know? And, and yet, you know what the spider's wisdom is? Is that they're scary. And they know that they can pretty much do what they want because you're not going to find them and they are scary and they're going to move into your house and they're going to live in luxury because they're not going to let anyone tell them that they can't. They dwell in the corners of king's palaces. They are all wise. None of these things are particularly beautiful. None of them are particularly strong in and of themselves. They survive and thrive because they have wisdom. Now, contrast that with verse 29. He says, there are three things which, are, which go well, yea, four are beautiful in going. Now, these things are not wise. These things are beautiful. Watch this. He says, first of all, a lion which is the strongest among the beasts, and turns not away for any. Now, the lion is the king of the beasts, and he doesn't have to regard seasons because when he's hungry, he just goes and eats right now. He doesn't have to prepare. He doesn't have to save up. He's a king, king of the, king of the jungle. He eats when he wants. I went for a walk on a frozen lake this past March, and I found a dead, ripped-up deer in the middle of a frozen pond. And I thought, this is, I took pictures of it. This is the coolest thing I have ever seen. It's a lion who wants to eat now, and he goes and takes what he wants. 
Doesn't need to be wise. He has strength. Next, verse 31, the greyhound. It says that he, that, that, oh, it just says the greyhound. The greyhound, his strength is his speed. So the greyhound doesn't need to be wise because he's swift. He's the fastest runner. He doesn't need rocks like the conies. Next, he says the he-goat. Now, the he-goat is strong. He just butts his way into whatever he wants. So he doesn't need to travel in numbers like the locust. Doesn't need wisdom because he has strength. And then finally, he says, and the king. It says also a king against whom there is no rising up. Now, the king, he owns the palace. And therefore, he doesn't have to move in like the spider in his wisdom. You know? So he doesn't need these things. He can just do what he wants. Can we all agree that life is easier for attractive people? Right? It is. Can we all agree that life is easier for rich people? Can we all agree that life is easier for smart people? For strong people? Yes. Can we all agree that 99.9% of us are not those things? We are not kings. We are not the fastest or the strongest or the smart. We don't have a lot of times the natural advantages that would allow us to do whatever we want. And the point is this, is that if you possess wisdom, then you can thrive even in the lack of things that would seem to be advantages you need. There's not very many kings. There's not very many of the greyhounds and the... no. But you can be like the ant. You can be like the locust. We need wisdom. God wants to give wisdom. The final word he gives in verse 32. He says, if you have done foolishly in lifting up yourself, or if you have thought evil, then lay your hand upon your mouth. Surely the churning of milk brings forth butter, and the ringing of the nose, that's, again, polite King James for picking your nose. But not just picking, because you could get away with that. This is ringing. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you know, I have five kids. I know exactly what this is. They're ringing their nose, you know. The ringing of the nose brings forth blood. Watch this. So the forcing of wrath brings forth strife. Here's what he's saying. He says, look, if you go looking for trouble, you're going to find it. Because you could look at a glass of milk and think, well, that's just an innocent glass of milk. But if you start stirring around in that thing long enough, after a while, you're going to see that, hey, there's a lot of fat in here. There's a lot of harmful peptides or whatever. You know, you're gonna, there's things in here that I, I don't want in me. If you start picking around in your nose, guess what? You're going to find that there's trouble that's going to follow. And the idea is what he's saying is, listen... Just don't go looking for trouble, because if you do, you're going to find it. You don't need to search everyone out, search out every situation, look for the demon behind every door. Listen, just keep your head clean, keep your eyes on the narrow path, live your life, and enjoy the blessing of God that he has for you. It's the heart of a father to his kids. One of my favorite things about being a dad is telling my kids things that I wish I could tell myself when I was their age. And I love having those conversations with them to just say, come here, let me talk to you for a minute. I'm telling you this because I wish I could tell myself this. And to just be able to reason with them in perfect love. And really, there's no epic close to this. There's no, like, massive altar call now, you know, like, repent. You know, it's not like that. It's simply this. It's that God's heart for us is that we do well. And what he has laid out for us, not just in Proverbs 30, but in the entirety of the book, 
is that he has given to us what we need in this life to live effective, fruitful, and blessed lives. And that's his desire for us. That's the heart of our God. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. It's a, it's a joy, Lord, to see truth connected between what you say in the pages and what we see, Lord, as we, as we live. And so tonight, Lord, as we uh, close, we thank you for these things. We pray, Lord, that they continue to feed, that they continue to nourish, that you'd help us, Lord, to appropriate and apply. And I pray for all that are here tonight, Lord, in every stage, every walk. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would cause your word to be alive, that you'd cause your spirit to be real, that you'd cause your presence to be uh, active. So, Father, thank you for your grace in us. And we pray that you would continue to lead us, continue to guide us, continue to bless us, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Let's stand together, shall we? Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.